a deep understanding of selflessness, or in the Pali language, anatta, non-self, is the great liberating jewel of the Buddhist teachings. It transforms our understanding both of the world and of ourselves. But it's also one of the most puzzling aspects of the teachings. If there's no self, who came to the retreat? If there's no self, who makes effort? Who falls in love? Who gets reborn? Who gets enlightened? And these are the questions that keep arising around this idea or experience or teaching of non-self. Sometimes when people first hear of this aspect of the teaching, uh, some people get frightened. The very notion of non-self or no-self, and they might imagine you're sitting all of a sudden you have this realization and then poof, you disappear, <laughs> you know, like some magician's trip, trick, and no longer there. As the observing power of our mind gets stronger, as mindfulness gets stronger, we begin to discover experientially for ourselves that our idea of self, or of I, is not what we thought it to be. We find that the self is not the body, it's not the thoughts, and it's not the emotions. It's not even awareness or consciousness. We begin to understand more clearly and more deeply that the notion of self, the notion of I, is a concept. It's a mental fabrication that's deeply and powerfully conditioned. Seeing that the sense of self, or the notion of self, is a concept and an idea is at once very surprising and it's also a great relief. As one Sri Lankan monk expressed it, and he said it very succinctly, no self, no problem. (laughs) There's tremendous truth in that. So tonight I'd like to speak a bit about what it means, what this idea of no-self means, both in terms of how it's created, why this belief in an I, in a self, is so strong. How it's created, why it's so strong, and the possibility of freeing ourselves from this tremendous illusion in our lives.
it all starts with an understanding of what we mean by mind. And in different contexts, we use that word differently. So it's important to understand that. But mind, in its most fundamental sense, in the Buddhist world, means the faculty or the power of cognizance, of knowing. It's this faculty of knowing. And when we look at the nature of knowing, of this awareness, we see that it's clear, it's invisible, we can't actually see it, it's open, it's unobstructed, it's naturally pure, because its only function is to know. Much like a mirror's function is to reflect. So that's what we mean most fundamentally when we talk of mind, this knowing faculty. But there are some other things going on as well in what we call mind. In every moment of experience, in every moment of knowing something, different qualities that in Buddhism are called mental factors, different habitual tendencies also arise with the knowing. For example, mental factors such as greed, or hatred, or love, or compassion, or mindfulness, or concentration, or energy. All the different tendencies, all the different qualities which arise in different combinations in every moment of experience and color the knowing. And so we know things through the filter or through the coloration of mindfulness or of anger or of fear or of this whole list of different mental qualities. Now some of these qualities, mental factors, are called unskillful ones. And they're called unskillful in a very pragmatic, for a very pragmatic reason. Mental factors are called unskillful when they lead to suffering. Certain mental factors are called skillful or wholesome. Again, very pragmatically, because those qualities of mind lead to happiness, lead to freedom. Okay, so there's the natural purity of awareness, the natural purity of consciousness which simply knows. Then there are all of these mental factors, some skillful, some unskillful, which color the consciousness. There's one particular factor I would like to focus on tonight. Because when it is out of balance with the others, both creates and keeps us imprisoned in the world of concepts, in the world of ideas, in the conventional understanding of self. So there's one factor which we need to understand, both how it works and how to keep it in balance. 
This is a factor of mind, a mental quality, which again in the Abhidhamma or Buddhist psychology is called perception. And perception is defined in a very particular way. Perception is that factor of mind which recognizes an object, picks out its distinguishing marks, creates a name or an idea or a concept for it, and then stores that concept in memory for future reference. So just a simple example. We hear a sound. There's the simple knowing of the sound. The factor of perception picks out its particular qualities, names it bird. And you know from your experience how quickly that comes in. Hear a sound and immediately there's the understanding, there's the recognition bird. Because perception has recognized that particular sound. It had created a concept or a name for it. And we draw upon that from our memory. When perception, when this factor of recognition is balanced with mindfulness, then the perception frames the experience. We call it bird. But then mindfulness comes in and allows us to experience the actuality of the hearing. We don't stay on the level, we don't stay on the surface, oh yeah, that's a bird, and not hearing actually the sound, the purity of the sound. That's when mindfulness is in balance with perception, when the two work together. When we're not mindful, sound comes, perception plays its role, we create a name, we recognize it, oh yeah, that's a bird, that's a truck, that's the wind. And then we stay on that level of superficial recognition. And we don't drop in to the experience of what that is. When we stay on the level simply of concepts, or predominantly of concepts and ideas, then we are reifying our understanding of the world, of these different objects and experiences, and we limit the way we understand things. Our concepts have limited us. I'd like to give you one example of this and then read a wonderful poem just to this point. I had a friend with a young son. The young son was, I don't know, five or six years old, and he was in school. And the teacher asked him, what color is an apple? And he said, white. And the teacher looked and said, no, you must be thinking of something else. Apples are not white. You know, apples are red or golden or green, but there's no white apple. But this little boy was very insistent, no, apples are white. And the teacher got, you know, kept trying to coach him along. 
But the kid was very stubborn, and the teacher was getting more and more aggravated. And finally the kid said, when you cut it open, what color is it? Yeah, and the kid had this wonderful mind, free of the prison of concepts of what an apple should be, what color an apple is, and could see in a whole different way, a much freer way. But for most of us, what color is an apple? Red. Green, yellow. That's the imprisoning, limiting force of concepts. I'd like to read you this poem. It's by the Polish poet, woman who won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago and whose name I really can't pronounce correctly. But it's Wisława Szymborska. That's a close approximation. This is the poem. It's called View with a Grain of Sand. We call it a grain of sand, but it calls itself neither grain nor sand. It does just fine without a name. Our glance, our touch mean nothing to it, It doesn't feel itself seen and touched. And that it falls on the windowsill is only our experience, not its. For it, it is no different from falling on anything else, and with no assurance that it has finished falling or that it is falling still. The window has a wonderful view of the lake, but the view doesn't view itself. It exists in this world colorless, shapeless, soundless, odorless, and painless. The lake's floor exists floorlessly, and its shore exists shorelessly. The water feels itself neither wet nor dry, and its waves to themselves are neither singular nor plural. They splash deaf to their own noise, on pebbles neither large nor small. And all this beneath a sky by nature skyless, in which the sun sets without setting at all, and hides without hiding behind an unminding cloud. The wind ruffles it, its only reason being that it blows. A second passes, a second second, a third. But there are three seconds only to us. Time has passed like a courier with urgent news, but that's just our simile. The character, the courier of time, is invented. His haste is make-believe, his news inhuman. It's a good reminder of how much of how we perceive the world is through our own concepts. We make up the world through our ideas, through our names, through our concepts. We can see this tendency to solidify the world through concept 
in many arenas of our lives. And sometimes it's with disastrous consequences. So it's worth taking a look at the power of believing concepts to be real. Just a few examples. A major arena of concept are the concepts of place. You know, it's like we divide up this world into countries, into states, with borders and boundaries. How much suffering has there been out of attachment to these concepts, to these notions, to these lines, imaginary lines on the planet? You know, the, the pictures from the satellites are so astounding. We don't see the world neatly divided up with different colored We've made this up, and it's not to say, with this and all the rest of the concepts that I'll mention, it's not to say they're not useful, because they often are useful. But when we get attached to them and think they're real, it creates a lot of difficulty. It's so strange, you know, in the changing geopolitical events of the world when boundaries move. The people are the same. The land is the same. Nothing in actuality has changed. And yet all of a sudden people now are living in one country rather than another. And it's not only out there and it's not only about countries. Attachment to concepts of place take many bizarre forms. Attachment to area codes. (laughs) When Berkeley went from 415 to 510, (laughs) painful day for some. (laughs) I actually heard a whole NPR broadcast on people's investment in their area code. Quite amazing. (laughs) Concepts of place, concepts of ownership. We have the idea that we actually own things. What does that mean? I mean, we're in a relationship to things in a certain way, but what does it mean to own something? There's a short story by Mark Twain was about horse traders in Russia. But the twist was that the story was told from the horse's point of view. (laughs) And the horses had no idea they were owned by anybody. They were simply in relationship to various humans, some of whom were kind, some were cruel, whatever. But this concept of ownership didn't exist. Sometimes it gets very painful. Last year I read, I read this very intense book, maybe, maybe you read it, King Leopold's Ghost. And it was about the historical event of King Leopold of Belgium somehow 
convincing the world powers that what was then created and called the Belgian Congo belonged to him. And the atrocities that went on because somehow there was this convention, this concept created and believed in where people were attached that somehow this was the personal fiefdom of King Leopold. You know, and that he owned the Congo. And it's, it's really a dreadful story of what happened as a consequence of that. You know, because of this strong belief or idea. We have this idea that we own certain possessions. Yeah, and it, again, it's, there's some use to it. I'm not suggesting we throw out this concept, but when we get so attached to it and think that there's a real, a reality behind it, other than a convention. There's a story of Ryokan, who was a Japanese Zen monk, hermit, poet, wonderful, wonderful writings from Ryokan. He lived very simply, very, very poor. He lived in these little huts up in the mountains in Japan, hardly any possessions at all. And a lot of his poems are about kind of the sadness or the melancholy sometimes of being alone in the cold winter nights in this little hut and not much there. And tremendous beauty in them also. Well, the story is that one time he went back to his hut and he found that the few things he had were stolen. And so he wrote this haiku poem. The moon at the window, the thief left it behind. Okay, now I just want you to do a little guided meditation here. You go home, you find everything's been stolen. The moon at the window. (laughs) The thief, unlikely. We have this idea that we own things that belong to us in some fundamental way. And undoubtedly, most of us would be quite upset if they were not there at our return. How would you feel if you came into the hall and somebody was sitting on your zafu? (laughs) Here we are in a place of liberation. And yet this concept of ownership, of possessiveness, follows us right in the door. It doesn't take much. And it can be about very little things. But it's a very powerful idea that is conditioned. It's a habit of mind, a habit of understanding. We need to see and understand that it is only a convention. And to use it when it's skillful. And to see through it when it's not. Concepts of place, of ownership, a major area of concept, one that, if we could see through, would be so liberating for us, is the concept of time. We have created the idea of past and future. And then we live with this tremendous burden on our shoulders, 
of past and future. How many of your thoughts and feelings during the day were related to something in the past, something in the future? Probably 99%. We live our lives weighted by those ideas, those concepts. And yet when we look at what past and future are in our experience, how do we actually experience past and future? We're sitting, minding our own business, watching our breath, and certain thoughts come of recollections, of memories, remembrances. These thoughts come, immediately perception comes in, recognizing that class of thoughts, puts a name on them, a general class, past, and then we take this concept past, which we've just created in that moment, and somehow toss it back behind us as if the past is a reality back there from which we've come. And yet, what has really happened? There has been a particular thought in that moment. That's all that's happened. But we've created this idea, believe in it, give it a reality that it doesn't have, and men are burdened by it. And we do the same thing for future. We're sitting or walking or whatever, thoughts of imagining, planning, anticipation, anxiety, worry, however we're relating to it. Perception comes in, recognizes that class of thoughts, puts this concept future, creates the concept, tosses it out ahead of us, as if there's some reality future to which we're heading. Again, it's not that the concepts aren't useful. They are useful. But they are only concepts. The only way we experience past and future are as thoughts or feelings in the moment. Now, as concepts, they're huge. It's like carrying mountains on our shoulders. We're weighed down by them. A thought in the moment is very light. Not much to it. If we could see past the perception the creation of that concept, past and future, and see that it is just a thought, no problem. Very light. And we respond to it, we do whatever we have to do, but we're not living burdened by our own mental creation. Concepts of place, of ownership, of time. There are so many concepts of self-image and role. How we present ourselves to ourselves, to others. And we have so many self-images. I don't know if you remember as a kid, remember pouring the plaster of Paris into those molds? That's the image that comes to mind when I think of self-image. It's like pouring ourselves into a certain mold and then wondering why we feel constricted. 
We've created a concept of who we are and then are imprisoned by it. And it takes so many forms and it comes right into our spiritual practice. It's not only our roles in the world, you know, as being a success or a failure or a parent or a child or a student or a teacher, whatever, whatever the role is. Sharon mentioned the other night working with Upandita and using uh, notebooks, you know, to just take some notes about our practice so we could report. Well, the first time we sat with him, I was sitting in this very intensive retreat, and I wasn't using a notebook, because I was just trying to remember. And after a couple of weeks, I saw all the people I thought were really good yogis had the notebooks out. And they were always writing things down. So I got really upset. I thought, oh, these are the really good yogis. Upandita must have told them something special. And I felt terrible about myself. You know, when is he going to tell me this secret teaching? And then a few weeks later, all the people I thought who weren't such great yogis I saw they had the little notebooks out. <laughs> so then I thought, oh, I must be a really good yogi, and Upandita realized I just don't need it. <laughs> and my mind was just making all of this up, living in that world with a lot of emotional consequence. And all it was, people were just taking notes on their sitting or walking so they could report. But how much of our lives you know, do we live in one self-image or another? Even some things which seem more fundamental, like age, or race, or gender, well, that's, they're real. Okay, I'd like to ask you a few questions. (laughs) How old is your breath? What color is your mind? Is the pain in your back male or female? Obviously, these concepts refer to certain kinds of experiences. But we get so caught by the concept and so identified with the concept, we lose sight of that level of reality which is way beyond concept, which has nothing to do with these categories. As long as we don't see that, as long as we live in this realm of conventional understanding, we have to act our age. (laughs) You know, if we realize that age is a concept, and we're free of that. Some of the deepest conditioning and the source of the most fundamental suffering in our lives revolves around one particular concept. There's concepts of place, of ownership, of time, of self-image and role, of age, of gender, of all of that. 
but the most fundamental, deeply conditioned concept, which is at the root of suffering in our lives, is the concept of self, of I. This concept arises as a designation for a very superficial perception of these mind-body processes. There's certain experiences which are happening, we have a very superficial perception of them. Based on that superficial perception, we create this notion. We create this designation, this idea, self, I, mine. When we look more closely, when we look carefully and deeply, we see that what we're calling self, that what we're calling I, is a constellation of very rapidly changing conditions. There's nothing solid, there's nothing static there that could be a self or an I. It's all the result of a superficial perception of an appearance. It's like getting up in the morning, looking in the mirror. Yep, that's me. You know, we have that that moment of recognition just based on a reflection, you know, of our bodies in the mirror. I'd like to use an example now which is one of my favorites and I've used for about 30 years. <coughs> As my colleagues groan. <laughs> but I have perfect equanimity. <laughs> Okay, you go outside at night, on a clear night. (laughs) You look up at the sky, and for those of you who have any familiarity at all with constellation, probably can recognize the Big Dipper. It's a pretty clear constellation. Okay, this, this is about halfway during through the retreat. This is like a midterm exam. Is there really a Big Dipper up there? (laughs) There's no Big Dipper. (laughs) What we're seeing are certain stars, points of light in the sky, in a certain pattern. We're putting a name on it, Big Dipper. It's just a concept. We've created that. But what's so interesting is to go outside at night, look up at the sky, and try not to see the Big Dipper. Very difficult. Because we've just been so conditioned by the concept to see in a certain way. And the concept is useful. You know, from the Big Dipper, you can find the North Star, and you're navigating in the ocean, you can find your way. But it also has other consequences. 
by separating out that particular group of stars from everything else, we sometimes lose the perception of the sky as a unity, as a whole. We're seeing these separate parts. Well, self, or I, or Joseph, or each one of us, is like Big Dipper. It's a name, it's a concept which we've applied to a constellation of elements. If we get lost in attachment to the concept, we separate ourselves out from the unity, from the whole, strengthening that sense of separation. Now this concept which we've created you know, from this appearance, there is an appearance, just like there's an appearance of the Big Dipper, you know, those stars, and we put a concept and we see it in a certain way, there is an appearance of this mind-body process. We call it self, we call it I. If we're attached to that, if we're not seeing that it's just an idea in our minds, that feeds an even deeper felt sense of I. Because we can have a concept of it, but there's also a deep feeling. I mean, I'm sure you have it. Okay, I can kind of get that it's a concept, but still it feels like I'm here. (laughs) Feels like there's an I. There's someone behind everything. Well, how does that arise? The concept feeds it. But it also arises through a process of mind that is going on very often during the day and which we have to investigate clearly to free ourselves from this illusion. And that is observing how the felt sense of I arises in any moment that we're identifying with different aspects of experience. And this happens many times a day, and I'll just give you some examples of how it happens. We identify a lot with the body. It's probably our first response to the question, who, are, who am I? This, this is who I am. But when we look more closely at the nature of the body, our identification begins to weaken a bit. I had a friend who had some laparoscopic surgery for a fibroid tumor. How they do that, they go in for this very small incision and there's a miniaturized camera and the surgeon is actually watching the screen and cutting away the tumor, but kind of the reward for going through it is that you get a video of the whole thing. Now, my friend really didn't have any interest in watching the video, but I did. (laughs) I was really interested. And it's amazing, because you're on the inside of the body. And you're just seeing from the inside what the body is. And you're seeing all the organs and the muscles and the tissue and the blood. Didn't look like anybody I knew. I mean, if we could see the body for what it is, would we be identifying with this? 
I'm the liver. I'm the pancreas. No, but we cover it all nicely with skin. It's nicely packaged. Yes, this is who I am. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's simply because we haven't looked deeply enough. We haven't considered this deeply enough. You know, we have a very superficial perception of the body and say, yes, that's me, that's I, that's self. When we look deeper, we see that it's not like that. But this attachment or identification with the body has very strong consequences. You know, when we are identified with the body as being self, as being I, there's tremendous fear of loss and fear of death. Because the body is going to go through its changes. You know, it is born and gets older and dies. I'd like to read to you one of my heroes, my great American heroes is Thoreau. He's just... When I recently started rereading, you know, most of us read him in high school, and then he's quite amazing and had an amazing sensibility and wisdom and understanding. He died very young. He died in his 40s, I think from tuberculosis. But he had this tremendous understanding and wisdom about the nature of things. I'll just read something describing a friend's visit to him, you know, at the time of his death. He said, Henry was never affected, never reached by his illness. Very often I heard him tell his visitors that he enjoyed existence as well as ever. He remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health, the mind always conforming to the condition of the body. The thought of death, he said, could not begin to trouble him. One friend, as if by way of consolation, said to him, Well, Mr. Thoreau, we must all go. Henry replied, When I was a very little boy, I learned that I must die. And I set that down, I remembered it. So of course I am not disappointed now. Death is as near to you as it is to me. Some of his more orthodox friends and relatives tried to prepare him for death, but with little satisfaction to themselves. When his Aunt Louisa asked him if he had made his peace with God, he answered, I did not know we had ever quarreled, Aunt. (laughs) When I entered, Thoreau was looking deathly weak and pale. Then I spoke only once more to him, and cannot remember my exact words, but I think my question was substantially this. You seem so near the brink of the dark river that I almost wonder how the opposite shore may appear to you. Then he answered, one world at a time. Clearly he had some understanding that the body was not I, not self, not mine. And the peace that comes from that. His Holiness Karmapa, at the time of his death, 
he died in uh, Chicago, I believe. He was very sick, cancer, and uh, he's the head of one of the great Tibetan lineages. And his disciples were kind of fussing about him and very upset, you know, about his passing. And it said that at one point he just turned to kind of his students and his disciples, and he said, "Don't worry, nothing happens." Amazing place to be. Because he realized so fully that he was not the body. The body was just going through its thing. So we identify with the body and we create a sense of self. We create a sense of self when we identify with thoughts. As I'm sure you've noticed countless times during the day. Thoughts arise, we're unaware of them, we get lost in them. We identify with them, I'm thinking, I'm planning, I'm judging. All the thoughts refer back to the sense of I, me, mine. And they're a tremendous burden to us. Just imagine the freedom if we could be aware of thoughts without identifying with them. Doesn't all the planning, all the judging, all the remembering, all the whatever is arising and passing through, no problem. But we create all kinds of stories and then live in those stories. And it's tremendous suffering. I mean, a lot of the stories we create are just misperceptions and not even true. One retreat with Upandita, I was doing walking meditation back and forth, and this was, you know, he's a very demanding teacher and kind of fierce. I was doing walking meditation back and forth. I was outside and I glanced up at the window and I saw him looking down at me, watching. So, I pretended to be even more mindful, although really I was just thinking about him. (laughs) And I'm going back and forth, you know, very, very slowly moving. And I kind of glance up, and he's still watching. And this went on for about 20 minutes. So I've just created this whole world, you know, of Upandit watching me do the walking meditation. And after about 20 minutes, I just I didn't understand why he was so interested in my practice in that way. So I looked up more carefully, it was a lampshade. (laughs) I had made up this whole story. (laughs) One essential lesson to learn about the nature of thought is that the only power thoughts have is the power we give them. And it does not matter what the thought is. They can be the most beautiful thoughts, they can be the most horrendous thoughts. The only power that they have is the power we give them. Because in and of themselves, thoughts are completely insubstantial. They're like these wisps of nothing. They're simply these 
words floating through the mind, when we are not mindful that that's what's happening, we invest them with this tremendous power, this tremendous reality, we take them to be self, and we torment ourselves. Sometimes I think of the unnoticed thoughts as being like little dictators of the mind. But it's really like the Wizard of Oz. Because when they're seen for what they are, oh, this is just a thought. There's an expression in Tibetan teachings about how thoughts self-liberate. And that's just what happens in the moment, as we get more mindful, in the moment of awareness, we see it as, it's just a thought. It doesn't matter what it is. It self-liberates. One of the great Zen masters of Korea, the father of Korean Zen, Shinul, he had one particular teaching about this, which is very helpful. He said, don't be afraid of your thoughts. Only take care, lest your awareness of them is tardy. So that's our practice. It's not to stop thinking. It's not that thoughts are a problem. It's that we need to learn to be mindful so that we don't keep identifying with them, creating this sense of self in them. That these thoughts are mine, or they belong to me, or I'm the thought. It's more empty phenomena rolling on. One little trick of practice that can really change the feeling tone of the meditation. Every time you awaken from being lost in a thought, and this happens countless times a day, every time you awaken from being lost, instead of judging the fact that you were lost, delight in the fact that you awakened. And really pay attention to what that moment of wakefulness is like, because it's a taste, it's a genuine taste, of the mind freed for that moment. (coughs) Freed from identification, freed from the dream. So every time we awaken, and this happens as many times as we're lost, it can be a moment of delight rather than a moment of judgment. We create this felt sense of self when we identify with the body, when we identify with thoughts, when we identify with emotions. As you know, all these different emotions arise at different times. We identify with them. I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm afraid, whatever. And then even more, we solidify our sense of self, well, I'm an angry person. So all of a sudden, we've created this concept of a being and how that being is, or I'm a sad person, or a depressed person, or a happy person, whatever. It's like we build a superstructure, a skyscraper of self, on top of momentary changing conditions. Emotions arise just like clouds form in the sky. There are certain conditions coming together, and anger appears, love appears, happiness appears, sadness appears. The conditions change, the clouds dissolve, the emotions dissolve. 
There's no one behind the emotion to whom it's happening. Anger angers. Love loves. Sadness sads. (laughs) It's just each quality of mind doing its thing. Can we begin to be aware enough and mindful enough and spacious, open enough to allow for the full range, the full expression of all these emotions without identifying with them, without taking them to be self, without creating the sense of self in that identification. A very different way of being. And it's not easy, because emotions are what we most personalize. So it takes a lot of practice and a lot of attentiveness and a lot of mindfulness to play with this. There's a few lines by Rumi, the poet. What I want is to leap out of this personality. I've lived too long where I can be reached. Wouldn't it be a tremendous relief not to be identified with this constellation of thoughts and feelings and emotions? It's not suppressing them in any way. It's making total space for them. For the free arising and passing, we're just not clinging to them as being I. We are really seeing their selfless nature. The most subtle level at which we, with which we identify. It's probably the hardest one to really see and understand clearly. Is our identification with awareness itself. Because even when we can begin to get a sense, yes, this body is just physical elements going through its trip. Thoughts come and go, and maybe we get a sense of emotion as arising and passing, still it's so easy to be identified with the knowing. We create the one who's knowing it all, the witness, the observer, or I'm the one who's observing it all. And so the subtlety of the practice is to free ourselves from identification even to the knowing, even to the awareness. One way that I've been suggesting people begin to get a feel for this, or a sense of it, is to re-language our description of what's happening with knowing and awareness. And suggesting that we language it in the passive voice. And so what I mean is, a sound arises, and is known, a sound being known, a sensation being known, a thought being known. By putting it in the passive voice like that, we take the I out of it. There's no self there, it's just the sound is being known, the thought is being known. A very non-personal process allowing for the full flow of experience. It's just things being known moment after moment. And then we look 
known by what? This is the great mystery of awareness, of consciousness. The sound is being known, the thought is being known, the sensation. Known by what? There's nothing to find. It's invisible, it's clear, this knowing is unobstructed, it's like space. Where's the space in the room? Oh, there it is. You can't point to it. And yet there can be the experience of it. This knowing or awareness has certain space-like qualities. Nothing there, and yet the knowing is going on. It's an amazing phenomenon. It's all happening selflessly. Self is a concept, a designation, a convenient one. I'm not suggesting we get rid of that notion. It's very convenient for communication. But if we get attached to the concept, we imprison ourselves. Moment after moment, experience is arising and being known. The Buddha summed up all of the teachings in one very succinct phrase. He said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Whoever has heard this has heard all the teachings. Whoever practices this has practiced all the teachings. Whoever realizes this has realized all the teachings. Very simple instruction, difficult to do. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. And so during the course of the day, we simply pay attention and watch for the contractions of self. I call it moments of selfing. We're just going along and it's fine and everything's flowing and moving. Then all of a sudden something happens and we can feel that contraction. Maybe it's through identification with a wanting or a desire or resistance or a judgment or an aversion, whatever it may be. Going along, going along. That moment is important. Pay attention to what's happening when you feel that contraction of self. Take a look to see what am I identifying with? What am I attached to here? Where's the fear? And in that very moment, it's possible to relax again into the selfless nature of phenomena. Bankai, who was a great Zen master of Japan, had a wonderful little teaching. He said, don't side with yourself. Very helpful to just watch through the day all the many times we side with ourselves. We create a sense of self you know, and then side with it. To see that, to be mindful of it, and to relax the heart in that moment. 
literally to relax the heart. Okay, can we relax into this flow of phenomena, of selfless phenomena? Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. This is the Buddha's very profound instruction to us. And this is really our practice moment to moment. This is the practice of freedom. Let's sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.